Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Project 25. I listened to your feedback on Instagram about how often you like new episodes and based on the results, I will continue uploading new stories every two weeks. I'm very excited for all the stories that are coming up, so stay tuned and don't forget to follow or subscribe if you haven't done so. For this episode, I interviewed author, artist, educator, partner, and auntie Crystal Yagu. When Crystal was 25, she had an awakening. She had recently graduated from a master's in social work. However, as a social worker, she never imagined how her devotion to equity and social justice will impact her career. After standing up for her beliefs, Crystal was fired twice, but she didn't give up on her mission to build a better world for everyone. In fact, she turned to education, where she also found liberation. Crystal's story invites us to reflect on how our actions can have a greater effect and impact on others. This was an interesting conversation with very, very powerful insights. I hope you enjoy it. Project 25 was born out of the obsession that we have of figuring things out. Honestly, being 25 is weird because we either pursue certain goals without questioning if they're what we truly want, or we're not sure what direction to follow, and that leaves us with a lot of uncertainty. I'm Andrea Juarez, I'm 25, and I decided to ask my family members, friends, and people I admire about their experiences being 25, what they did, what were their beliefs, what they've learned, and what's their advice for the new generation of 20-somethings. There is a lot to live and learn, and I believe that by listening to others, we can reflect and learn a little bit more about ourselves and think about what we want for our present and for our future. Thank you very much, Crystal, for joining me today, this episode of Project 25. How are you doing today, <laughs> this afternoon? Um. <laughs> I am doing well. Just really glad to have the opportunity to speak with you because sometimes I get invited to things and I get the feeling from the person who's inviting me that like even though they may be well-meaning, they may not have any like comparable lived experience to me and this will not go well despite maybe their best efforts. But you are a fellow brown woman. So that gives me a little bit of hope that that's not the direction this chat will go in, which is why I was keen on connecting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> but yes. we got each other, right? <laughs> yes. And Crystal, just to get the ball rolling, I wanted to ask as part of the project, of course, what is your age and your title or how will you describe yourself? So I am 37. I often struggle with what labels I might use these days because in the past, I would have really super enthusiastically said I'm a social worker. And over time, like the more that I come to understand how social workers were a big part of the harm of residential schools, for instance, that isn't a title that I hold quite as proudly, right? And not just kind of 
learning about that stuff. But the fact that I didn't learn about it in my actual program, that I had to do that learning on my own. So there's still a lot of terrible social workers out there who do not understand the harm of their practice, right? So like that is still a title I use, but not as enthusiastically. Usually it is a title that I use when I'm in a room with people who hold more power and maybe aren't as critical about knowing that. And I want to let them know, hey, I've got some competence that maybe you might minimize. (laughs) So (laughs) that is one of the titles. Another title that I've kind of grown into using is educator because I've taught as a university sessional instructor. I have taught as like a workshop facilitator in my like day job roles that I've done over the years as a social worker. And now I do a lot of writing workshops like for local arts organizations. And so I tend to think of all the ways in which I can encourage others in those spaces to learn and unlearn as my work as an educator. And then a writer, I think I'm at the point now where I've got hundreds of articles published. So that feels like quite an achievement given how much gatekeeping there is in the publishing industry and how many things I can say that can alienate potential editors. <laughs> but I um, I also think really critically about how being a writer means maybe I can support more emerging, or maybe I shouldn't say more emerging, but less published writers. So people who have always been writers, but they've just never gotten the opportunities to get published. And, you know, like, what do I know now that I didn't know before that maybe I can share to support their process? And, you know, as part of that work, of course, is really kind of coming to think of myself as an artist. And, you know, when I, when I talk about being an artist, I think of like how there's certain people who have done a really good job of telling us that artists are essential for us to think critically about the world around us and basically to do better, right? So that's a big part of my art. And alongside that, I do a lot of, like I said before, arts facilitation, but also facilitation in other ways, like I've done focus groups facilitation, for instance. So just thinking a facilitator as really broad, because sometimes you're like informally a facilitator, just because like you're the person who maybe understands certain issues and people trust you. And so you're kind of facilitating hard conversations. But alongside all of those titles, I I think of myself as an equity practitioner. So how do I promote equity in all of these ways that I show up in the world? That's awesome. And congratulations on the 100 articles. <laughs> that is a huge achievement. For sure. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so thank you for that, Crystal. And now I wanted to ask you, especially when you were talking about mentoring, like writers who haven't had the opportunity. So like the younger the younger ones who may not have had a chance. So what did you do when you were 25? Like, were you studying or were you working or what were yeah. your hobbies and interests? 
So, Andrea, I do just want to clarify one thing. When I talk about, and that's the reason why I backtracked on that language of emerging, because I'm not talking about it in terms of age. I'm talking about it in terms of access. So, basically, two years ago, a lot of publications reckoned with the whiteness of their newsrooms. So, they issued things like an anti-racism pledge or on social media would say, looking for BIPOC writers. If I'm being really frank, two years later, I see... A lot of those efforts are things that those same publications have now pulled back from because they realize that they can get away with it because capitalism, yay, right? Like all of this stuff is interconnected, unfortunately. And so um, so that's what I think about. I think about all the folks who have always been entirely brilliant and gifted, but the people in charge of who gets published did not look like them or think like them or value them, unfortunately. But back to your question, what did I do when I was 25? I was graduating from a master's of social work program from the University of Windsor. And at that time, Andrea, I really want to note, I had such optimism about the field. Like, I'm sure there are people who maybe come across my work now and they're like, what happened to her? Because you look at how I believe this was a field that valued equity above all else. Like I really drank the Kool-Aid. I really, truly believed this. And so there's folks who might say things to me now, like, have you thought about how you might come across as negative? And absolutely, because guess what? All the folks with power have told me that when they want to silence me. So I think about that a great deal, actually. But what I think about more is how how me failing to think critically about oppression harms the folks who are most impacted by oppression. And they're always going to take precedence over the people who want me to be optimistic about a field that has done terrible things. So yes, a huge difference in kind of my own mentality from 25 to 37. Okay, so that leads me to my next question. What did you think when you were 25? So you said that you were such an optimist about the field, but like besides social work or like the field, what was your vision of the world? Did you have like a huge belief or did you follow a religion or like had a mantra or did you have like a specific mindset? I'm not like the most structured thinker. You know, I think back to like, this TA in my first year sociology course, he gave me 100% on an essay exam. I didn't think somebody could get 100% on an essay exam. But when he gave me back my paper, he said, your essay just flowed like a dance. And that is literally how my brain works. So I look at me as social worker and me as someone who tries to be a good human being. And I look at them as being very much of the same thing because that's the whole reason I got into the field. I really embodied those values. And so at 25, if I think of religion, I still practiced Hinduism in terms of the rituals I was raised with. And I still identify as a Hindu now, but more culturally than religiously. So I'm not always as good about paying attention to whatever milestones there might be in terms of a Hindu festival that's coming up when that's happening. But for some people, you look at my name and you can tell that I'm South Asian from my name. So whether I want to be identified as Hindu or not, there are folks who will identify me in that manner. 
And sometimes there are folks who will make misconceptions based on my name. So I had an interview recently with someone who is Muslim. So, you know, their name, as soon as you see their name, it's really hard to doubt what their background is based on this name that is Muslim. We know that most folks who are Muslim are black and brown as opposed to white, for instance. And so I I was talking to this person about Islamophobia. And in that discussion, I said to them, like, just so we're clear, Islamophobia doesn't just affect Muslim communities. It affects any of us that can be assumed to be Muslim, right? So I think of an uncle of mine who is... I'm I'm not in touch with him, so I don't actually know what he is now. But in the past, he was a university professor. And after 9-11, he experienced Islamophobia, where people thought this brown man with a beard was Muslim and therefore a terrorist. And at the time, and again, this is where I hope that with time people evolve. But at the time, my uncle, the suggestion he got from this academic institution was, well, maybe you should get rid of your beard, right? Like no policy change, no education, nothing for like the people who are actually ignorant of the truth. But like, this is your personal problem. So shave your beard, please. <laughs> so, you know, how how are those things all intertwined? And yeah, for me, I, I definitely identify as Hindu culturally, but less so religiously. And then the other thing, if I think back to 25, is that I believed nonsense, like I could change systems from within. Whereas now I know that you're more likely to get chewed up and spit out if you attempt to do that. But back then, I really, truly believed that like oppression was caused by all these slews of people across the world who simply did not know what they did not know. And I was going to educate all of them, all of them and their dogs and their cousins and, you know, everything. Whereas now I'm like, uh, oh my goodness, how naive was I? Because that unfortunately, you know, was was not the reality of, of what I've seen. Thank you for sharing that, Crystal. And now that you're saying that everything, yeah, like you say, like, oh, I was more naive. So this is a very broad question. So you can talk about whatever you like. But basically, from when you were 25 to this day, what has changed? Like in yourself or in the world, in your environment? Yeah, Yeah. what has changed in this 12 years? Yeah, I think so. I guess the the most formative experiences in that over a decade period is that I've been pushed out of two permanent full-time jobs by white supremacist workplace harassment. So that makes it very clear to me what happens when you attempt change from within, when we're talking about highly bureaucratic organizations that have literally evolved with time to co-opt power. So for myself, what happened when I attempted to do that work is that I was targeted relentlessly to the point that it exacerbated my conditions of migraine. And so the first time that this happened would have been back at the end of 2016, At the time, I was working for a family health team where the executive director actually felt so entitled that he put in writing, you were hired to practice social work, not social justice, as if you could ever 
pull those two things apart, Andrea. So, you know, the fact, the fact that this little old white man thought that he could do that and get away with it was just really demoralizing. And it was happening right around the time when in the world, Trump was coming into power across the border. So it felt like there is this little old white man absolutely doing terrible things across the border and I have my own version at my workplace. And so I had never before had any problem sleeping. And that was when my sleep issues began, where I was just so completely and totally traumatized by the way that I was treated at an organization that if you looked at like their mandate, they were literally about helping people, but they were hurting somebody who cared to help the most marginalized people. And so that was kind of like my first experience of seeing rhetoric versus reality and those disconnects, how they can be used to oppress us. And so once I really navigated that for the first time. The second time that I ended up being targeted in another workplace, it exacerbated the migraines and insomnia. And so both jobs I left on medical leaves from which I never returned. And so I really understand over this you know, period of time that most are complicit with white supremacy at the expense of BIPOC folks, unfortunately. Like, that's what I know now that I didn't know at 25, that like, there's a part of me that wishes somebody who looks like me had sat me down and said like, hey, I know you want to change the world, but I'm a brown woman like you. And I've been chewed up and spit out for trying just that. So maybe you should take that into consideration in terms of doing a master's of social work program. And during the pandemic, I reconnected with my dad, this old man back in Trinidad who has a lot of unlearning still to do. <laughs> and so in chatting with him, I've shared this insight and he feels very comfortable telling me, Andrea, that even if somebody had done that, I'm so stubborn, I would have still thought I would be the first social worker to get it right. So I don't actually know what I would have done, but I always think at least I would have made an informed decision as opposed to going in thinking something that turned out to be so completely different from my experience. Yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you. That really sucks. And yeah, yeah so, so yeah, you wish that you had someone like who, like, who looked like you, right? Like who yeah. tell you, like warn you basically about yes. what the work would entail. That's really important. Representation matters yes. for sure. And Absolutely. sorry, Crystal, I didn't ask you. So are you originally from Trinidad and then you immigrated to Canada? Yes. Okay. So I was in Trinidad pretty much from birth until the age of 14. And then I have mostly resided in Canada aside from like, I don't know, maybe I'm trying to think how, like, what's the longest my trips to the U.S. have been. But like maybe the most time I've spent in the States would be like a summer in New York or like a few weeks in North Carolina, like just wherever I have loved ones. I, I've spent time there. But yeah. 
I would say primarily from 1999 until now, I've been based in Canada. And initially, I don't know how familiar you are with these like areas, but initially I moved to what is called Brampton, Ontario. And Brampton is colloquially called Brown Town. So you can imagine the demographics. Okay. Okay. I was, I saw more of the negatives of that than the positives of that because I met a lot of brown people in Brampton who assumed I spoke their mother tongue, which obviously thanks to the prophet of the white man on the sugarcane fields in Trinidad following the abolition of slavery, I only speak English. But these people often assumed that I was like this corrupt person because I could not keep my mother tongue and speak it confidently and proudly. And it was like, this was literally lost due to trauma, my ancestral language. So, so that first experience in Brampton wasn't always the easiest because I got a lot of judgment from fellow brown folks who felt that I had like failed our shared community or something. And then I did grad school in Windsor. So I moved to Windsor for two years. And then, so I don't know what you know about Windsor, Ontario, but it has the highest unemployment rate in the province. So I took like a 50% pay cut for this grad school program. I thought I was going to change the world with. And and apparently Windsor has like the fourth most diversity in all of Ontario, but I never saw it while I was there in terms of racial demographics. I always found that like bizarre to know that this was the fourth like most diverse city. And then my first job offer was in North Bay, Ontario which I don't know if you know about North Bay, but it is very cold, very rural, very white. And so I would get called a terrorist in Walmart. It was terrible. And so I was in North Bay for 52 long months. And then once I was able to escape from the North, I thought I would have ended up somewhere much more progressive by ending an hour outside of Toronto in this tiny town called Port Perry at a family health team. But that was the job that I had to leave based on the white supremacist harassment. So it has really been a few different cities that I've lived in. And then since 2019, 18, 19, I've been in like the Scarborough, Ontario area. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for letting me know. Yeah. That's a long journey, like city, like moving <laughs> so many cities. Yeah. And yeah, like, I'm sorry that happened to you, like all the racial slurs. Like you just want to get your groceries. Like you don't want to deal what? with this ignorance. Like leave me alone. Yes. <laughs> and, and that's why I really talk so freely about this stuff because I think of the people who are genuinely the ones who don't know what they don't know, right? Where they're like, why do people want to talk about racism? Like I remember a social worker at the time, I, I would have called him a friend. I don't call him a friend now, but back then he once said to me that he didn't understand why I talked so much about racism. And I said, because literally it harms me daily. And he was like, but why wouldn't you just focus on love? Love will fix racism. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, but that is like a terribly uninformed opinion on something where you lack lived experience. So like, please, please, please do not ever repeat that. 
because that is is bad on so many levels. And yet he was a social worker in the prison industrial complex. So can you imagine being incarcerated and having this individual say to you, you know, black and brown people are overrepresented in prisons, but we just need love. Like that is maddening. I am in awe of how much harm could have been done. So that's why I speak really openly about this stuff, because I want the average person who maybe doesn't live the reality to understand that for those of us who do, this harms us on a regular basis. So me talking about it is me desperately hoping that doing so will limit harm to the communities that I hold dear. Yeah, totally. I totally get your point. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that wasn't a very informed comment. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe like kids' intentions were kind, like spiritual wise, whatever. Maybe. But yeah, we also live in the real world. And like yes. I I also consider myself a spiritual person, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I like to keep myself grounded in the fact that yes, we live in a world that's dealing with all these issues. So yeah. especially in like Western countries, in terms of like what you were saying, like racism and white supremacy and yeah but even though this this stuff rules the world but i wanted to ask you now yeah. that we're talking about this too because given your background in anti-oppressive practice in your social work and writing and educating like how do you find balance because like i mentioned to you at the beginning like i've interviewed several people on their experiences working in like social justice and i know it's not an easy job right like these topics are very dense even like i myself sometimes have to step out like i don't want to read the news and like when i take a i want to take a break because of all the stuff that goes on so how do you deal with that I think that is definitely an area that I have lots to maybe further develop a skill set around because I often am connected with more marginalized folks. So I feel a responsibility to put aside, you know, my tiredness or my just whatever deadlines or whatever, whatever it is that might be a valid reason to turn somebody's request for help down for other people. But for me, I often feel just such a sense of responsibility to support more marginalized groups that I will sometimes offer to do more or um, agree to do more than maybe I should if I were to value balance. And so what kind of guards against that to some extent is the fact that I'm very intentional about who I keep in my life, I guess is the best way to say it. So, you know, I talk about my dad, for instance. So my dad, like I said, is this old brown dude. I sometimes joke that he is an old brown dude who thinks he is an old white man for how much bigotry he lets escape from his lips, Andrea. So (laughs) when it comes to him, I think of how he is not the easiest person to have in my life because 
he can sometimes leave me so frustrated from a conversation that I then have the capacity to do less good in the world. And so that is often the way I frame it to him when he thinks I might be asking a lot of him. I'm like, why do you think I send you all of my articles on equity issues? Because maybe if you understand it a little bit better, you will not call it the Chinese virus, sir, right? Like, calm, ah, oh, right? So stuff like that, that is, is how I'm very intentional. You know, the other day he said to me, am I the only problematic person in your life? I said, no, not the only, but definitely the most, right? Like you're at a hundred and my partner's at like a one, right? So it helps that the people that I do keep in my circle are people who are genuinely committed to like not harming more marginalized folks. I'm not claiming that any of us get it right all the time, but we understand that this is a necessity to do better when we can, how we can, you know, like there's that Maya Angelou quote about do the best you can until you know better than when you know better, do better. And so I think a lot about that in terms of folks that in my life who, you know, if, if I were to say to them, oh man, I got asked, you know, I, I can think of a tangible example from a recent situation where I was doing a workshop on how to pitch and get published for organization that supports Muslim communities. And so I was asked if I was comfortable with it being recorded. And because the person asking is somebody who I consider a friend, I can sometimes feel like, of course, I want to say yes to this person because they're a friend and they do equity work too. And like, we're in solidarity. But I'm trying to give myself the time to pause, to really reflect on what else I have going on in my life and whether saying yes to a question is in the best interest of the difference that I want to make in the world. So me saying to my friend, oh, let me think about it and get back to you, allowed me to then have a conversation with my partner to be like, hey, I don't love being recorded. Am I like being too picky about not wanting to be recorded like do you think there's enough benefit in making it accessible with a recording to like outweigh some of the ways in which a recording of me out in the world can alienate potential freelance work like am I overthinking this and I I think of my partner as like the more level-headed one between the two of us like I think of my like initial responses as like not necessarily what I let out of my mouth. I think of how a lot of what I even eventually let out of my mouth are what folks are like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe she said that. So for me, I really value his opinion because he he tends to be more level-headed. And so he was like, you do a lot of facilitation work. The average facilitator does not agree to be recorded because that literally takes money out of their pocket. And at the end of the day, even though I'm trying to dismantle capitalism. Andrea, I need to survive under capitalism until we get to that point. So, you know, what, what does that look like in terms of how I respond to a question from someone? And so, so I, I think for me, 
taking the time that I need before I agree to something is one of the ways that I can try to do better in terms of balance and having people in my life who I genuinely trust. I trust that our values are well aligned enough that I can come to you and be like, hey, can we talk this through in case I'm missing some context that might help in my decision-making process? That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, Yeah, I feel like uh, having a support system is so important all the time, but I will feel that especially doing that, like social work and social justice. Yeah, I think you you will really need that. And Crystal, maybe you already spoke a little bit about this, but I wanted to ask you nowadays, what are your beliefs? My beliefs, some have stayed the same. Like I still have an interest in doing equity work. I still have an interest in making a difference in the world, but I definitely have had to be more strategic about how I do that, given the fact that I have found the field of social work to be largely complicit with white supremacy and really defensive when you attempt to educate them. And so for me, the, what that looks like in terms of a belief system is recognizing that I probably should not leave my livelihood in the hands of one white person in power because the second I alienate them, my paycheck that is expected to come at the end of the month may be annihilated. So instead, I've looked at freelancing full time as a way to increase the odds of my survival, right? Because at least now when I alienate a white person with power, it's just a little chunk of my entire income in a given period. And it is not quite as demoralizing as when I get pushed out of multiple permanent full-time jobs. Yeah, I understand. And I guess with freelancing, you're also able to reach a broader audience, right? Like you're educating more people. I think part of what unfortunately colors my perspective is being the daughter of a gambling addict. So I associate freelancing with like instability. You know what I mean? I think there are people who would be like, I get to be my own boss. Of course, I want to be an entrepreneur. That is not me. That has never been me. Capitalism has never appealed to me. Like making more money. I did like a boot camp sort of like business mentorship thing. And all these coaches were like, how much money do you want to be making in five years? And I was like, I don't really want to be making a certain amount of money in five years. Like I want to be doing more good in the world. But I was a terrible client for them to have a meeting with because I couldn't answer their questions in ways that allowed them to advise me because our goals were like completely unaligned. And so when we talk about like representation matters, sometimes I think people have like the most superficial level of understanding about that. But I literally mean if we do not have enough commonality in our lived experience, sometimes nothing you say will be relevant to my life. Like you could mean totally 101% well, but literally you telling me what you did as a white woman will absolutely and completely never serve me a second in my life from that point on. So me agreeing to meet with you because you're like, oh my goodness, I could help you with this. I'm like, actually, I understand oppression better. So no, you can't, but thank you. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. So now that you were talking about like, oh, I don't really enjoy like being an entrepreneur and even just what you talked about your previous jobs I want to ask you what has been your biggest challenge and how do you deal with it or dealt with it for 
me, when I think of my biggest challenge and how I deal with it, again, because so much of the revelations over the last decade and more has been around surviving multiple systems of oppression with folks with more power, I really have had to think about all the ways in which power operates. So I remember being off on this medical leave in Port Perry from that family health team and realizing that even though I now understood that I was always at daily risk of assault from white supremacy, I didn't always know that. So now that I knew it, it was like, okay, so it turns out you've just been lucky for the first 30 years of your life. So congratulations. Okay, now that you know this, how does that change the way that you go about things? And if I'm being really frank, I think there's lots of folks who in that position would have been like, now I stop talking about white supremacy and I get all the social work jobs. And, and I see that a lot of non-Black, non-Indigenous, racialized people who I tend to call model minorities. They've really bought into this myth that if they kiss up enough to white people and kick down enough Black and Indigenous people, they will succeed because it'll give them some proximity to whiteness. And so for me, it was during that terrible time that I thought, what can I do? Even if it means I die in abject poverty, what can I do so that a hundred years from now, nobody who looks like me feels as hopeless about their ability to succeed on this stolen land? Because for me, I had once thought like, I have a master's of social work. I have teaching experience. I have clinical experience. I have writing experience. The world is my oyster. I will retire owning a house with financial stability and no debt and money to pass off to loved ones, right? But then I had this reality check thanks to, you know, inherent white supremacy in the medical industrial complex where it was like, wow, no, you actually don't have any of those things that you thought you had. And I think part of what impacted my thought process is that during that time, I really struggled with feeling like a worthwhile human being. I felt like a shell of myself. I felt as if I had failed. And I'm not very good at being a failure. Like I'm the person who skipped three grades when I moved to this country. So the thought of feeling like I failed is something that I probably struggle with more than somebody who has had less success in their life. And so for me, I had to find a way to feel less like a failure during that time. And so in the year 20, 2017, I read over 400 books by marginalized authors. Because if I could add a book to my Goodreads list, I could feel like less of a failure, Andrea. So I was like, I'm going to read all the books. And then when somebody finally gives me back my hijacked, hard-earned career, I am going to be the most anti-oppressive social worker I can possibly be. You find a way to get, to keep yourself motivated. You're um, an overachiever, right? I'm kind of like that too. I like I constantly like want to challenge myself, but yeah, it can yeah. come from a feeling of not feeling like enough, and especially mm -hmm. if we are in a. Because I was talking about a in a podcast. He was a guy. He was also an immigrant, and he was telling me that he has talked about this with other immigrants as well. That sometimes we don't 
feel enough, right, compared to the dominant culture, because we're immigrants or like, I don't know, yeah. for me, like English is my second language. So sometimes I will like kind of like feel okay. that way. But yeah, I get kind of get what you're saying and how all, of, I mean, we have like different stories, right? But I can totally yeah. get why you felt that way, especially when your career took, had to take that when it shouldn't have, right? But trying to turn this into a more, because we we're talking about challenges, but now I wanted to ask you yeah. if you could share about a time in which you succeeded and what happened and what did you do? Before I answer that question, I have to really share how much I've had to unlearn in terms of what counts as success. So, so much of what I had thought about as what counted as success was really what I now think of as like respectability politics, model minority myths, those sort of things, settler colonialism, you know? So again, I go back to that Maya Angelou quote, like now that I know what I know, how do I do better? For me, it's about trying to commit to unlearning what Audre Lorde calls the master's tools. So for me, it might be something as simple as thinking about how I take up space in the world. So if I'm in the company of white folks, for instance, they tend to have a really good history of undermining my competence. So if I'm in that space, I might answer this question by sharing that I want a $10,000 Toronto Arts Council grant to work on my essay collection. They colonized even my tongue, right? But since I'm exploring this discussion with a fellow brown woman who I think values BIPOC communities, I feel safe enough to share that successes that I really value are the ones that come in my relationships, the ones that come with the relationships with people that I care about, because I have a lot of pride in that. So especially when I think of loved ones who are also multiply marginalized and how we can challenge what are sometimes harmful generational narratives of what counts as love or family and how we can hold space for new understandings of what we need to feel safe, especially when navigating a trauma history. So this might sound like a weird example, but one of the examples that I think of as success was the first time I took my niece to the Cheesecake Factory for her eighth birthday. I don't know if you've been to the Cheesecake Factory, Andrea, but like I would always be able to experience the Cheesecake Factory when I was in the state. And then a few years ago, their first Toronto location opened up. And so my niece had never been to the Cheesecake Factory, but her mom and I had been. And so I was like, we were both like, oh my goodness, it's, you know, your birthday's coming up. Like, where do you want to go? And I was like, and she will take you to the Cheesecake Factory if you want to check it out. And so we really like hyped it up for this, you know, eight-year-old child. And this, I don't know, again, if you're familiar with this context, but like the way that it worked when this restaurant had initially opened, you would have to like wait in lines for hours to like get a seat in this restaurant. So we literally got to Yorkdale Mall and I got put on the list. And then when my friend and her daughter arrived, we went to the movie theater in the mall and watched an entire movie so that we would make our way up the list to be able to go eat at the restaurant, right? So we went and we had what was a lovely meal and tried a bunch of different cheesecake 
and we shared and her mom and I and my other best friend who came along like we had a lovely time chatting and catching up and then when we were leaving my my friend said to her daughter thank auntie for bringing you here for your birthday and something like tell her how much you liked it or you know like something that I'm sure I was told 101 times growing up and my niece being who I think is sometimes the most brilliant human being on the planet said to me auntie thank you for taking me to the cheesecake factory for my birthday but if I'm really being honest I feel like your mommy hyped it up too much it really wasn't that impressive just thought like wow if I had said that as a kid to my aunt I might have been called ungrateful Andrea right? So how did I manage to make this child feel safe enough that she could say that? Because I think of, you know, as a kid, I would be that person who my family member would be like, oh, that's auntie whoever, your mom's friend. So go give them a hug. And I'd be like, I don't know them. Why should I give them a hug? They're a stranger. I just met them. And then they'd be like, oh, why are you so rude? They didn't understand bodily autonomy, Andrea. But my niece, my niece understands things like consent and freedom of speech and like all these super cool things that really I wish more people understood better. But that's the thing that I think of as success. Like, how do we have relationships with people who have less power than us and use that power ethically? That is beautiful. Yeah, I laughed. I wasn't mute, but I laughed when you said that about parents telling you to do this and that hug this person. Right? Like, no wonder why everyone has like childhood trauma. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that is beautiful. I, I want to be a cool auntie for my nephew too. <laughs> and Crystal, I have another question. So can you share a time in which you failed? So whatever, like, whatever that means to you, like what happened, how did you handle the situation and what did you learn? So again, this relates to my earlier point about how much I've had to unlearn, right? About what gets defined as failure versus success. And what I've really tried to ground myself in is the knowledge that what counts as success and failure has largely been defined by folks who do not navigate multiple marginalized realities, right? So obviously that may not align super well with my experience as someone who is fat, brown, queer, disabled, immigrant woman, like all of these things that work against me in terms of the problematic status quo. So when I think of my biggest failures, I think of things that in retrospect are where I failed myself and my values. So as a writer, the best example example I can think of is when I failed to make my writing accessible to the reader. As in the beginning of this process of getting published, I would often get told as I navigated from pitch to publication, my writing was too academic for whatever grade level of understanding the publication catered. Now, although that may have been true, the fact that this message was initially delivered by white editors who largely reminded me of white social workers, who I think of as the group that have harmed me the most in my whole life, despite residing in Trinidad until the age of 14, where I had never met a single one of them. I struggled to believe they were not just using that as an excuse to silence and derail my valid points regarding oppression. Like now, 
now that I know, thanks to more editors who are BIPOC and or LGBTQIA plus and or disabled. So I'm like, oh, they get oppression on a level that I do. Thankfully, I realized that there were times where I maybe didn't do the best job I could as a writer to convey a message in a way that was accessible. And the reason I say that is because I want the message that I put in my writing be something that someone who is also multiply marginalized like I am can read it and because they now understand whatever the point is that I was trying to make, maybe they don't internalize an experience so that they then question if they're a failure. I really want people to understand that we are often told that there's these systems of like checks and balances that like make sure everybody's okay. That is absolutely not the reality. And so if you're one of those people who maybe is told that, then you're essentially being gaslit into thinking that your personal problem is not tied to a larger public social problem. And so so that's where I'm like, okay, if I failed in my ability to make my writing accessible, then that's something that I think of as a failure that like, now I think I've gotten better at, but I didn't always believe that feedback when I was told like, oh, this is too academic. And so it, it made the process of revising much more difficult, whereas now I'm like much more willing and able to engage in that process. I didn't have much experience with academic writing until like last year. So it was, yeah, it was something like interesting <laughs> for sure, because I do have experience like freelancing with journalism, but mostly like features and stuff. So, and I had gone to a technical school. I had not gone to university wow. until last year. So yeah. And yeah, I had that when I started, I was like, am I going to be good enough? Am I on the right place? Like, because yeah. I was so nervous about academic and currently now, like I've had more like team projects and stuff. And I'm okay. like, I kind of miss like, like I kind of want to write an essay. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, I totally, yeah, get like where people were coming from. And also like sometimes we are, we are isolated, like, well, not isolated, but we are, we sometimes assume that people know what we know. If yes. we are with people who are on our same fields, who are on the same like, like education levels or whatever. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. And now, Crystal, I wanted to ask you, you talk a little bit about this when I asked you about your success and with from your response, I could tell that, but what has motivated you or what motivates you? So I think what motivates me is often feeling as if my work will make a difference in terms of equitable outcomes for the most oppressed groups, which is why I became a social worker initially, right? So as someone whose disability-related flare-ups often mean I struggle to execute all the tasks I aspire to complete, I have to be super intentional about where I want to devote my time because migraines, back pain, and sleep issues torment me. And so if I think of like a tangible example, if I believe that investing unpaid emotional labor will either allow for something oppressive to happen less often or for an oppressed group to access more liberation, then I can usually convince myself to make that happen, which is why in practice, I charge for freelance work on a scale. So if you are coming to me looking for a workshop 
and you are a large, highly bureaucratic organization, then I am going to charge you in the hundreds for any part of an hour of my time so that it then allows me to do tons of unpaid labor supporting BIPOC writers. Because especially if they're more marginalized beyond just being BIPOC, their ability to survive in this world is likely to be threatened. You know, I think back to last December, I was contacted by NASCAR. When I got that message in my LinkedIn, Andrea, I wondered if it was fraudulent, right? Like, what is NASCAR going to have to do with me? I, I am not the poster girl for NASCAR, Andrea. So in that moment, like, I remember sending a screenshot to my partner and being like, is this legit? You know, and again, you know, my partner is more level-headed. So he was like, let's see why not. When we Google them, the, the people seem to have those roles that they say in your LinkedIn uh, message. And so it was really interesting because I don't know much about NASCAR. Let's start there. I don't know much about NASCAR, but I do know that they had to ban the Confederate pl- flag at their rallies. So that is not the one fact you want me to know about your organization, right? Because that is going to color how I perceive the work that you do. And so I end up on a call with them. And again, because I operate on this sort of sliding scale, I think of how there are people who may value my work but be so grassroots that they're unable to pay me or they're unable to pay me much. So I think of like the brilliant organization that helped me to get back into writing during the pandemic, which was founded by Black, trans, queer, writer who had been through the quote-unquote American justice system. So this person understood oppression in ways that really informed the work that they did. And so Nicole Shawan Jr. in their workshops really embodied values that aligned well with mine. And their organization is called Roots Wounds Words. And so they cater to BIPOC writers. And when I first heard about their organization, I had never before been in a BIPOC-only space. And only because of the pandemic was I able to infiltrate an online space as a Canadian because it was really for U.S.-based folks. And there was no way I was going to like travel to New York every weekend just to like go to a workshop like that would not have happened in real life. So I attended workshops And then I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I want to try to start something like this up with my local arts organization in Scarborough, Ontario. And so I've then managed to facilitate sustainable resistance for BIPOC folks online writing workshops. But when Nicole was running a book club for their organization in the second year, Nicole asked if any of us wanted to facilitate book club discussions. And I 
adore the book Wild Seed. And I mean, lots of Octavia Butler's work is prolific, but that is the only book of hers that I've read. I, If only I have time, I will read more. But, but because I knew that Nicole was covering that for one of the months, I was like, I am usually trying to fit in as much paid freelance work as I can. So I'm not reading as many books these days. But this book, I know I've read it before. So even if I don't reread it in the most depth of all, times, I'll be able to facilitate a discussion. And so I would have done that for free because of how much I value Nicole's work. But Nicole believes in paying, especially folks who are marginalized for their labor. So even though it wasn't a ton of money, I I don't want to misrepresent if it was $25 US or $30 US, but it was less than $50 US for sure. And so I remember the morning of the workshop, the payment coming in before I even did the book club facilitation. And I don't know about you, Andrea, but for me with freelancing, you know how many big publications have all the money in the world and they take months to pay? So like that for me was like this moment of really kind of crystallizing for me who I'll be willing to do unpaid or low paid work because I genuinely align with their values right and so when I had this discussion with NASCAR I was asked are you expecting $500 for only half hour and that is where I'm supposed to say no of course not Andrea I'm supposed to say oops I must have miscommunicated something right that's how that question is meant to go and in Instead, because again, I think sometimes there's this, I don't know, misconception, maybe misunderstanding that those of us who are treated badly by these systems of oppression are those of us who are terrible at articulating how oppression works. But guess what? I'm a really great example that that is not true because I can deconstruct oppression so well that it can get me fired on the spot. I'm that person who will come up with the wittiest answer and it'll just appeal to the white fragility in the perfect way to get me a disciplinary letter, right? And a meeting after that. And then, I don't know, a five-day suspension without pay. <laughs> so that is where I look at my experience and I explain that to the NASCAR person. I say, I'm working actively to dismantle capitalism, but until we get there, I need to survive, which is why I really want you to understand that there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. But because I understand things like the prison industrial complex, I read this book during that year when nobody would hire me called Cuz. It was by Daniel Allen, and it was the story of their cousin who had been incarcerated and eventually was murdered. And in telling his story, this cousin basically delves into something that I had never heard about before, which is the way that slavery pretty much continues in how the U.S. carceral system works. So it was something like, I don't, I'm not good with numbers, but it was less than a dollar per hour. Or if it was more than that, it was like $3 per hour, but it was like less than $5 per hour that these prisoners were paid to do the most dangerous work fighting forest fires in California. So 
how is that legal in this century? And so once I understood things like that, to see how capitalism is tied to anti-Black racism, for instance, I can then have a lovely discussion with NASCAR when they come to ask me to do a webinar because I'm like, all of these things are interconnected. So maybe you need some time to think about if you have $500 to pay me for half hour and that's okay. Please take as much time as you need because the one thing I knew about you all before you contacted me was that you had to ban Confederate flags, right? So that doesn't give me a lot of reason to think you're the best fit for me as a human being. But here we are, right? That is how I approach things. And that is really what allows me to like keep going and stay motivated. That's a very good story. I think a lot of the times mainstream advice fails oppressed groups. So the mainstream advice is that women aren't making more money because they're not negotiating well enough, right? So the advice is learn to negotiate and you'll get more money. Well, guess what? If you're a black or brown or trans or and or all of these types of women, that advice will not serve you well because at the end of the day, we can be seen as aggressive just for existing, right? So it's not about lack of negotiation. It is about the perception of negotiation when we engage in that practice. Or like they will think like, oh, how, how does she dare? Like she should be thankful she's given an opportunity. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. You're but, a good son, Andrea. How dare you? Why aren't you more grateful, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But now that you were saying about advice, that sometimes some advice doesn't work for certain people yeah. and something does, I wanted to ask, what advice do you have for today's 20-somethings? Or what do you wish you knew when you were 25? I guess my advice really kind of ties into something else that I think a lot about, which is like my legacy. Like at the end of the day, when I can be described in 500 million different ways, by different people who know me. So I think I alluded before to that interview with the Muslim queer person who was telling me about Islamophobia. And at the end of the conversation, they were like, oh my goodness, Kusum, it was so lovely chatting with you. Your energy is just so positive. And I was like, damn, there are a few white people who would call me that, right? Because that has to do with perception. And when I am saying things that make you feel as if you have not done as many things as maybe you once thought you did in terms of being a trailblazer or a inclusion specialist or whatever you're trying to call yourself these days, trauma-informed, then what does that mean in terms of how I'm perceived? And so for me, I think a lot about this Audre Lorde quote that says, I've come to believe over and over that what is most important to me must be spoken, made verbal and shared, even at the risk of having it bruised or misunderstood. That the speaking profits me beyond any other effect. What I most regretted were my silence of what I had ever been afraid. Death, on the other hand, is the final silence. My silences had not protected me. Your silences will not protect you. So for example, the more anti-racist I got in my practice of social work, the less I heard from white social work, quote, who I once called friend. So I think of one example where I had a woman that I had gone to grad school with spend less and less time catching up with me the more anti-racist 
racist my practice became. And eventually he said to me, you know, Crystal, I don't know how to say this. So I'm just going to say this. It's not good for my depression to hear all the details of your oppression. Time, Andrea, I think I might have said something like, I'm sorry to hear how that works out. But back then, I did not have the words to say, good thing you're a manager of student counseling services at a Canadian university, so you can easily access culturally safe treatment for depression, unlike marginalized folks who can endanger their ability to pay their expenses to exist on this land that was stolen from Indigenous communities. So my plan for the future is to have a legacy that is about contributing to equitable outcomes for the most oppressed folks, disrupting the problematic status quo, given that I have the opportunity to even do this as a brown woman, largely thanks to the work of Black communities during the civil rights movement, which unfortunately did little to operationalize that Black Lives Matter in the face of white supremacy. We know that. We know that two years ago, everybody and their cat heard about Mr. George Floyd's murder. But guess what? We don't have defunded police now, even though that was the hype, right? But then we reverted back thanks to incrementalism. So when I think about what I would advise someone who's in their 20s and maybe they're looking at someone like me, And they're like, damn, she's an oldie. She will not be a revolutionary thinker. I will end up emotionally and mentally drained if I engage with her. I don't think that's a good plan. I guess I want to tell them, you know, some of us oldies are pretty revolutionary in our thinking, despite the fact that we're not still in our 20s. So please don't give up on our generation, even if you've seen movement were co-opted. And then the other thing, which I think we've already touched on maybe, is to please understand how rigged these societal systems are so that you never internalize them not meeting your needs as a failure of you as a human being because that is literally how oppression colonizes the mind. That is amazing. Thank you very much for saying that and yeah I think this is going to help a lot of people and I have one that this is the last question. Is there anything you'd like to share that you think it's important and I didn't ask? I tend to be this non-linear thinker so a lot of times the way that my head works is not necessarily like a lot of times I, I will tell a story to make a point rather than to give maybe the most linear answer to a question and like I really had to sit with that over the years to be like you will probably not be seen as the best candidate for a research job because this is not how knowledge production is valued in Canadian mainstream society, right? Nobody says like, oh my goodness, we want a researcher who values storytelling. But guess what? If you did, I'm your gal. So, you know, I've really had to reckon with some of those things. But because I understand things like, art can be transformative. I do really feel very strongly about the stories we tell. And I think if I can make some term that I use for my value system, that other people who are doing that work in solidarity with me will understand. Sometimes I might call myself someone who's a disability justice practitioner, or I might call myself a transformative justice practitioner, or I might call myself an abolitionist. 
those are all terms that for some may be something that they're like, oh, this person is going to align well with me. But then there are people who will associate that with something that they might think is contributing to them or people like them having less power in the world. And if you are reckoning with shifts in power, you can sometimes think that other people getting rights means you lose them, even though that is not how human rights work. And so when I think about that, I really try to break down the jargon to be like, okay, what do all those terms mean? And at the end of the day, it means I care about justice. And then what does it mean if I care about justice? Well, it means I care about these communities that I hold dear. So at the end of the day, even though I'm often called words like hostile or aggressive, I actually just love oppressed folks enough to try to make their existence less terrible. And that's how I would love for people to understand some of the equity work that doesn't always get as well received as like a pride message that says love is love, you know? Like those of us who do the deeper work, we can sometimes be not as well received even though we are probably doing the most meaningful work in terms of making a difference in the world. Yeah, because you're like shaping up the status quo, right? And people in power don't love that. Like, you know, I, I do these writing workshops, like I said. And so I have someone who I served on a disability justice committee with, and then she came to my writing workshops. And one of the things that she said in one of those meetings was, I think this is the first space where I've ever felt safe enough to exist as both a disabled person and a Black woman. And that's heartbreaking that it took decades on this earth for her to be able to exist as two parts of her identity. Because there are people out there who get to exist as every aspect of their humanity. And they get to fail up, Andrea, not just exist. They do harm and then they get promoted. Like that is the world we live in, right? And so you have those folks who are like, The world is getting worse because of all those protesters, you know? And then you have someone like this person who is like the kindest human being who has the most understanding about people not always doing the best job of things. And yet she doesn't get to exist in the world in a safe way a lot of the time, which is really not how things should work if we call ourselves civilized yeah i'm sorry to hear that she felt that way too yeah but thank you for holding this space because i really think that these are the kinds of conversations that more of us should be having thank you so much crystal for opening up and sharing all your experiences and for your honesty and for sharing your knowledge with me and the people who listen to this podcast <laughs> thank you Thank you so much for listening. If you like the episode or you think it will be helpful for someone, feel free to share. You can also find the written stories at medium.com slash project 25. 
If you know someone who would like to share their experience being 25, you can send me a message at the email that's on the episode description or through our social media channels, which are also listed on the episode description. Thank you for your time. I hope you have a wonderful day. I'll see you later. Bye-bye.